This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good morning, and welcome to the first of Rand's Call with the Experts Summer Series. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at Rand. These calls are one of the many benefits of supporting Rand. Today, our topic is what millennials think about security. Joining us today are two of the authors of a new report, Millennial Perceptions of Security. Marek Posard is an associate military sociologist at RAND. Good morning. Good morning. Catherine Edwards is an associate economist and professor of the Party RAND Graduate School. Hey, Catherine. Good morning. Their report is the latest contribution to RAND's ongoing Security 2040 initiative, and we have the leader of that project as well with us, Andrew Paraselidi, who is director of our Center for Global Risk and Security. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. So let's begin. First, Andrew, uh, could you give a brief overview of the Security 2040 project? Maybe why did you pick the year 2040? We wanted to look into the future, and we wanted to identify those security issues that are not what we would call our inbox national security challenges. Those are, you know, what do we do about North Korea? What do we do about Iran? We've got a lot of activity at RAND going on on those subjects. So the Security 2040 initiative was the brainchild of Michael Rich. He came to me two years ago and he said, uh, what will it take to make us, the United States and the world, more secure or to be secure in the year 2040. And we took a very broad definition of security. We placed no constraints on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Michael thought that RAND is as well positioned as it has ever been to deal with these national emerging threats to our security, going back and speaking to our legacy of dealing with the threat of nuclear weapons. Which so, one, so, what, what, so what are we what are we covering in this in this series? Well, we're covering security in its many manifestations. Uh, we're looking at technology trends and how they shape security. We have already published reports on how artificial intelligence may affect the nuclear balance and nuclear deterrence. We've published a report on the disruptive impact of additive manufacturing. We have future studies dealing with uh, the human-machine interaction on the battlefield, encryption. But we're also looking at social and demographic trends, and that speaks to some of the issues we're going to get into today about how millennials, this new generation, which is uh, emerging and by 2040 will be in key national security leadership positions, perceive security. And who is funding all this work? Different funders or? This is, this is a project of uh, RAND Ventures, which is uh, RAND discretionary funding, which comes from our donors, like many of those on the call, uh, which we very much appreciate, who are able to support this type of activity, uh, which allows RAND to explore questions that aren't supported by our government sponsors. All right. Excellent. Thanks, Andrew. So let's dig into one of those pieces of research, Millennial Perceptions of Security. First, I suppose we we should note that millennials, and we're talking here about folks born between 1982 and 2000, which is all three of my kids, are now the largest segment of the U.S. population, more of them than there are baby boomers. So what do they think about national security? My impression from, from your paper Marek and Catherine, is that millennials are not really terribly concerned. Uh, Marek? Well, I would just kind of caveat that to say that millennials don't worry as much about some national security issues in comparison to baby boomers. And so, for example, we found that around 83% 
of baby boomers reported being worried about North Korea's nuclear program. In comparison, 64% were worried and reported being worried. And so while a majority of millennials are worried, it's just not as much as baby boomers in terms of our sample. Hmm. And Catherine? I would add to that that in most instances we saw that the, there was no deep generational divide across national security or policy priorities. But the the national security issues definitely saw that boomers were more worried on average than millennials, but that was the opposite under issues of economic security. So we asked about you know, pretty basic financial measures. Are you worried about making ends meet or saving enough, paying off debt or losing your job? And in that instance, we could have taken those responses to write the report that baby boomers are the only generation that are not very worried about their finances. So, for example, when we asked about paying off debt, uh, 40% of baby boomers were worried Uh, 60% of Gen Xers were worried, and 68% of millennials were very or somewhat worried about paying off debt. And and help me again with this link between this economic security and the national security questions. What's the nexus there? Well, we don't have the means of pointing a causal chain out and saying, because millennials are worried about economic security, we must therefore conclude that's the reason why they're not as worried about national security. There's there's no way that we can make that claim and support it with evidence in our study, but that's the pattern that we found. So we can't say they're causally related, but they're definitely correlated that people who are more worried about economic security tended to write in that they were less worried about national security and issues of foreign policy. So maybe they can't have worry overload. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure a psychologist would be better equipped to tell you about how, you know, the primal concerns of someone's life might, you know, crowd out the concerns for a nuclear program in North Korea, where I'm only experts on uh, the statistics. Do we know whether if you went back 30 years, do we we know what boomers, how concerned they were about economics versus uh, national security a long time ago? Well, we do have survey data dating back there. It's a little, it's not as sophisticated as what we have today. But with that being said, there is evidence anecdotally and with some survey data that the younger you are, the more worried you are about your economic well-being. And in fact, you're not making as much when you're younger. Precisely. And on top of that, if you look back onto like the 1920s and the 1930s, this same narrative comes up about making money, concerns about, you know, employment. And you see this kind of constantly coming about in terms of news cycles every 20, 30 years. And so we, it kind of underlies our underlying hypothesis is that this may have more to do with age than it has to do with any kind of generational label that we're kind of tacking on to a group of people. Hmm. So the older you get, you've got more money, but you're nervous you're going to lose it. Well, I'll let Catherine talk about that. (laughs) Um, or if your own, you know, primary necessary financial concerns are being met with less risk and insecurity, you can focus on more external issues. And a lot of people will tell you that their rent matters more for them than North Korea's nuclear program. But then if you own a house and you don't have a mortgage note anymore, you know, maybe you can care more about nas- uh, national security in North Korea. But again, I mean, it's hard to say exactly what's going on. I mean, we, we in the report talk about age because this is a project, as Andrew explained, that looks at 20 
2040. And so we take it from the perspective of what can, insights can we provide about who will be in the leadership class in 2040. And this will be when millennials are at their height of office holding, of general lean, of CEOing. And that was our perspective. But if we could write this report and look at education and say, how does this vary by someone's education? Or we could look at it by race and say, how do all these concerns vary by race? And each of those layers is a nuanced interpretation of the results we have by age because millennials are the both highest educated and most diverse generation uh, of the three that we examined. Did you slice it also? We did. The other ways? Yeah, and it, and it tends to, we found income as a common theme that the less money you have, uh, the more that you focus on your own economic security as opposed to national security. Hmm. So the, the wealthy, uh, you could say, are more concerned about national security? Typically, We found a correlation between that and our evidence. We surveyed the American Life Panel, which is a very unique uh, instrument at RAND. It's a survey or a sample of 6,000 nationally representative households in the U.S. that have been surveyed kind of as needed or as interested um, for the past uh, almost 10 years. And so they not only do we have the answers to our questions, but answers to previous questions. We know they, what they have <laughs> been saying for many years. We know whether right. they're changing their tune or not. Right. So it's RAND's uh, sample that we use for various analyses. Um, we've asked the American Life Panel about how they make investment decisions. We asked them what they thought about the candidates going into the 2016 as well as 2012 election. This particular project asked them about national security and economic security concerns. And I would just add to kind of talk about the capabilities of this of this panel is that we actually find people, if you don't have a computer and you don't have internet access, we give you a free computer and pay for your internet access. And that becomes important because it allows us to get hard to reach populations. Mm. And going back to Catherine's point about looking at other survey questions that the same people in our sample answered, we were able to, for example, look at political affiliation. And we found that a lot of millennials are undecided. And so as we're working through a lot of these hot button issues right now in our country, I think millennials as a block are really trying to figure out where their priorities are. And I think our report in particular highlights some of these patterns where when you're starting to look at 2040, what is going to be their priority as they are deciding what political affiliation they, they want to potentially be identifying with? Did, did political – did you arrive at any uh, insights regarding political affiliation? Oddly enough, we, we, we looked at our findings and we said, well, maybe a lot of this is just if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Mm. And we controlled for political affiliation and it really didn't change our results, which suggests to me that – um, if I had to kind of take the leap after looking at our data, I would suggest that perhaps that it's not a political issue that's driving it. And maybe like for a lot of millennials, their concerns and worries don't necessarily drive into one, fit neatly into one political party or another. Okay. Yeah, the American Life Panel is clearly a very cool, useful tool. Why, why should we care about millennials' views toward national security? Is it a big deal? Well, I would argue that we shouldn't really care about millennial. Attitudes. I would agree. <laughs> we should. We're on the same page here. We should actually Wait, care is, more. Is anyone on this call a millennial? <laughs> well, 
Well, Mark and I are technically millennials. Uh-huh. Okay. Millennials aren't a Just thing. Always with a grain of salt. Yeah. If you call the Census Bureau and you ask them about millennials, they will tell you, because we did this for ourselves before we started in the research, it's not a thing. There's only one baby boomer. There's only one generation. That's the baby boomers. Why? Because a bunch of people left the United States uh, to fight World War II. They came back around the same time and they started having babies. And we saw the single year over year, largest year over year increase in our birth rate was right after World War II. That was called the baby boom. And that's considered a significant demographic event. And that's why we call them the baby boomers. After that, it's a lot of gimmicky stuff. People kind of attaching labels, calling people Gen X, millennials, echo boom. And in our report, we actually list a laundry list of labels that people are using that are binning people by various types of age ranges. Simply put, there's a lot of ways to analyze people's lives. Binning people by their age and calling them a generation is only one out of many ways. And we try to kind of emphasize that we may want to move away from that and focus more on the attitudes and opinions of young people, particularly when you want to understand what's going to happen when they get older and they age. Right. I think I would add to what Mark is saying by adding that. We, as we, you know, individuals and experience, you know, culturally important and nationally important events, we can think that there is an age aspect to it. You know, I won't ever think of nuclear security the way that someone will who lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? I think that that's a a fair point. Or maybe you won't think of, you know, the events of September 11th the way that I will because you weren't in high school, Mm. you know, and you were older and you had had. That wasn't your introduction to terrorism, but it was for us. But at the same time, you know, those we can hold that as a truth in our on our report and in our minds and then still kind of, you know, say that eschewing generational labels is probably most beneficial for understanding what will happen in the future because these labels are, for the most part, completely artificial constructs that we've just decided to assign to a group of people and not they didn't come from an event, you know, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? We didn't say this is the group of people that experienced an event this way and therefore they have consensus views. You know, we, you know, advertisers and, uh, you know, various companies have decided that this is a group and then kind of put characteristics on them. So our report tries to emphasize that these constructs, you know, it's not that they're not helpful, but they could be misleading, right? It could be that you're missing the what's really driving security concerns if you're focusing on age uh, instead of something else, something else that could be driving it. So bearing in mind these caveats, what do you view as, uh, what are the implications for U.S. security policy? Well, I would say that if, you know, we, we can make informed speculation about what the future would hold for 2040. But with that being said, um, I would argue that, you know, in some cases, perhaps at least in the short term, economic security could be driving our public discourse, particularly in the policymaking process. We're starting to see this now with a, with a concern about economic inequality, particularly around younger individuals. And on top of that, you know, it could be also that perhaps as people focus on economic issues, maybe, you know, this younger batch of individuals may not be as concerned with national security in the future. And what could happen is they just kind of let those who are interested in that topic deal with it. On the flip side of it, there may be a demand push here from younger folks in the future that we dedicate more resources to kind of domestic issues related to economic security instead of relating it to or instead of use, investing resources into national security issues overseas. Yes, absolutely. The economic 
uh, implications of a generation. That, and we could talk at length about uh, the earnings trajectories of millennials, the median price of kind of basic goods such as uh, rent uh, in cities where millennials tend to live or where people live and millennials are there also. But it, we, I mean, we could talk about the various economic obstacles that are in the way of millennials and the implications that economic inequality may have on policymaking. But I think, you know, the other part of our report that could have implications for policy is that millennials are very diverse. And this is this diverse is, in what sense? They are racially and ethnically diverse, okay. much more so than the baby boomer generation. So, when baby boomers were born between 1946 and 1964, they were at the time somewhere between 80 and 85 percent white, non-Hispanic, and the remainder were black. Their composition has changed as they've got older because of the immigration boom in the 80s and 90s from Hispanic countries. Uh, So at the moment, they're around 70 percent white, non-Hispanic. That is far more white than millennials, which the current estimate is that they're only 55 percent white, non-Hispanic, and that uh, roughly one in five millennials is of Hispanic origin Mm -hmm. uh, and still 14 percent to 15% black. So it's a, it, the, the composition of who is at the policymaking table um, hasn't necessarily changed yet, but it should and probably will change in the future. You know, the backgrounds and the experiences uh, of what is making foreign pol- of who is making foreign policy decisions should become more diverse as we hit 2040. 2040, and just kind of as a note, 2040 to 2044 is the range in which the U.S. Census Bureau currently projects that whites, non-Hispanic white, will become the majority majority minority. So around 2040 to 2044, the percentage of Americans who are Hispanic, uh, Asian, Black, Native American, or two or more races will eclipse the percentage of Americans that are white, non-Hispanic. Your study builds upon a previous RAND study uh, that looked at the recruitment of or what are the issues that the intelligence community uh, needs to be concerned about in recruiting millennials. Some of that has to do with this generation being more exposed to technology, having the option of working in different locations. What can you tell us about that study and what it your study reinforced or maybe diverged from those results? I think that study was a great first start to begin exploring the implications for the policymaking establishment, if you want to call it that, and how they're going to kind of interface with young folks, particularly recruitment. I think that there's no shortage of studies that you can find throughout history that talk about, talk about the limitations of young people. There is old articles from the 1920s talking about how, you know, these kids with their flapper girls and their jazz music aren't going to be able to fight the next great war. And now we call them the greatest generation. And I think that we see that kind of same trend when you start looking at major demographic shifts when young folks start entering into the labor market. With that being said, I do think there are technological forces and there are social forces in our world that are unique that lead people to change the kind of norms of behavior in the workplace, how they dress, how they talk to people. And I think that's just an issue of negotiating between older and younger individuals. I think there's a there's a cottage industry that's been set up to kind of pit the old and young against each other. And in fact, if you look at some of our results in the appendix, what we found was there is actually a lot of similarities between young and old in terms of their policy um, um, concerns. And I think that might be 
useful, particularly right now, to start looking at where there are actually overlap. Because maybe in some cases, young and old aren't that different. And maybe we have a lot more in common than, than some would want us to believe. But we're young people, so old people will probably tell you we're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I would add to the, to the national security point that this is um, – a parallel conversation that's happening in the world of STEM, um, science, technology, engineering, and math. And I would say economics is included in this as well, that the recruitment uh, and pipeline for uh, essentially minority populations or historically minority populations, so women, um, people of color, uh, Hispanics, it just they have not been introduced into the pipeline of uh you know, Cordy's report was about the intelligence community, but you could say the same thing about the uh, research community, uh, about most of the STEM disciplines, that they do not have the, 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 the racial and ethnic composition of young people are not reflected in certain professions, uh, of which uh, intelligence community, her report was about one, but it's, a, again, a parallel problem to a lot of other disciplines and fields. That is a much uh, larger, and I think much less tractable conversation because it involves so much more than uh, how do we get them interested in the jobs, but what is it that, what are the features of the jobs, what are the features of the pipelines leading to the jobs, what is the role of mentorship, it's something that we don't really understand. And I, and I say this coming from a profession widely regarded as one of the worst. <laughs> and that profession being? Economics. Okay. <laughs> And I would just say there are forces that go beyond just these kind of demographic bins. So, for example, we know that there are more younger folks when they have when they marry off, they're having both both partners are actually working, you know, in the labor market. And so what's happening is surprise, surprise, people are starting to ask about work family balance and looking at ways to work from home. Probably that doesn't have as much to do, I suspect, with the fact that you're a millennial and might have more to do with the fact that you are balancing unique demands given our current like era. And so, again, when you start moving beyond just saying, well, that's what millennials think and saying, well, what's the actual factor shaping the lives of younger people today? It tells a little bit of a different story. Exactly. Could you talk about one of the questions that was in the survey, which is how important is it for you to live in a country that is governed democratically? Well, what we found was that 90, around 89.4% of baby boomers said it was very important to live in a country that was democratically um, governed. That percentage goes down to about 66.2% for uh, millennials. I think there's two things to keep in mind here, and actually one of which was Catherine. I remember pointing this out when we were analyzing the data is, does that mean that millennials don't really value democracy, or does that mean that baby boomers really like democracy? And I, I think that with that being said, though, we did find a linear pattern with that item. What does that really mean? It means that the older you were, the more likely you were to say that was really important for you to live in a democratic country. And so we that could just be an age thing, but it also could be a huge, it could suggest a division between old and young in terms of their views of democracy. And maybe that potentially, we don't know for sure, could be an indicator of the current state of affairs in our country and how each generation or each people born in each kind of birth cohort are perceiving the current state of events of our democratic discourse. I don't suppose we have an answer for 70-year-olds over the last 50 years with their view about democracy that would be my dream if I had okay. resources to do that. You don't have that particular data. There's similar okay. questions where we can compare, but I, I think having the same item over time would probably be a, um, 
ideal thing to look at. We could look at that for some data, like the General Social Survey might have some data dating back to the 70s. American Election Survey might have some data dating back to the 60s. I'd have to double check. But I think ALP, that would be an amazing thing for the ALP to look at over time. I would add to Mark's point uh, first that there were also different – age was not the only difference in the – democracy question. There was also lockstep differences between races, and there were lockstep differences between education levels. So you also were more favorable for democracy the more education you had. And you were more favorable to democracy if you were white as opposed to uh, black or Hispanic. So part of the age effect, whenever we talk about the differences by age, remember that the composition of millennials in terms of education and race uh, could account for a lot of it. And in the report, we try to use the differences in the generational compositions to understand how, mov- how much of what we're looking at is an age effect versus the fact that younger people have a different composition than older people. Um, I would also say the second point is, uh, this is a really vague question. <laughs> you know, it's, it, was, it was intentionally vague. So, for example, you know, only 66% of millennials said that it was very important um, but 30% said that it was somewhat important. So boomers said, you know, 89% it was very said it was very important, and only 8% it was somewhat important. So there is a difference of degree of enthusiasm. If you combine those two? If you combine them, they're equal. Uh-huh. So it's just the degree of enthusiasm that differed, not the positivity towards exactly. democracy. So the, one of the things we did to try to get at this is we did ask questions about certain aspects of democracy. And there were two in particular. Uh, we asked, how worried are you about the integrity of U.S. Democra- US institutions? Uh, also somewhat vague. And then we asked, um, how worried are you or how much of a policy priority is, is it for you to protect the civil rights of minority groups? And I would say these are two aspects of American democracy. And what we found there was that was the, that was the split that baby boomers were more likely to report being worried about U.S. institutions, and millennials were more likely to be worried about the civil rights of minority groups. Mm-hmm. So these, you know, in theory, the civil rights of minority groups would, would not be a very large issue in non-democratic countries. And so there's, it's, it's a lot to unpack of these, from these views, but we thought that those two answers were particularly revealing about what could be going on with that. Question. I think just to be clear, we're not saying that young people dislike democracy. Yeah, by not stretch saying of the that at all. Yeah, that sounds like the shades, of, like you said, shades of enthusiasm. Exactly. Um, just a reminder: press one four if you would uh, like to join in. Actually, I think we do have a call uh, operator. If you'd like to bring that in. Thank you. And our first question comes from the line of Nancy. Please go ahead with your question. Hi, I was wondering if you had broken down the data as far as democracy on voter participation, if you asked them at all about their voting habits. We asked in uh, the survey, uh, did you vote in the last three elections uh, or did you vote in the last presidential election, the last midterm election or in your state and local your local and county elections. So, sorry, three three tiers, national, uh, congressional, and local. And we asked each respondent if they participated. And we were very proud that millennials did not lie and say that they voted as much as boomers because we know that they don't, and they told us they didn't. And so we found that, that for each category, there was a drop-off in voting by age, which follows national. Which direction? Oh, so the, so the older you are, the more likely you are to vote in each election. 
And, and that follows what we know from uh, exit surveys of, of what is the composition of voters. If uh, no one else queued up just now, I wanted to ask, to what extent were you finding similarities or harmonies between the boomers and the millennials? Where are they in sync, if anywhere? I mean, we found on a, a, a variety of different policy issues. So we ask questions about policy priorities. And, and, and when we ask questions about protecting the privacy of U.S. citizens, investing in worker training programs, um, uh, expanding public benefits for families in need, and even climate change, we didn't find differences between old and young. And so I think that suggests it could be a couple things. One is people may lie on the survey. They, you know, There's what we call social desirability bias, where people want to say everything's a priority. Um, but on the flip side of it, that, that seemed to be systematic across old and younger generations. But I think what there might be is there might be kind of concern or priorities that are similar over that are overlapping old and young. And I think those are opportunities that actually push this discourse in this country to see where there actually might be places that there is an overlap. With that being said, I, I would wonder if how one views the specifics of these policy issues, because they are pretty vague, might vary by old and young. But again, I think that's more of a discussion of where can we find commonality, particularly in this day and age. Yes, we should note that for our survey, we tried extremely hard to not be political at all in our questions. We were not trying to understand if they were Democrats or Republicans based on their answer or if they were liberal or conservative. We wanted to ask about issues that are could be extremely uh, polemic in a vague enough way that we just found out if it was important to them without finding out what they thought about it. So, you know, for example, expanding public benefits for families in need did not tried to eschew any um, kind of political connotation of how you would expand benefits, what defines need, um, and how we would how we would look at that. So same with um, uh, investing in worker training and education programs. Right? These are not actual policies that we're asking that ha- that exist, and we're asking if they support more of policy areas that they care about. And, and you saw divergence or no? These are these were there was a lot of synchro- there's a lot of harmony between yeah, better there was a lot of harmony between the generations on these what I would think of as you know workhorse American public policy issues. How much should we help people in need? How much should we invest in training? You know, or it, as well as kind of new and emerging issues like the privacy of U.S. citizens. They were in you know there were not statistically different responses by age. And I just want to point out that our survey, we were we administered the survey in June and July of 2017. So this was a time when we had a, a controversial election and there was a lot of hot button discourse going on back and forth. And so we made sure we spent a lot of time making sure that our question items were worded in a way that were vague enough that didn't seem like we were trying to solicit an endorsement of one policy or another, mm-hmm. but still was precise enough to get a gauge of where people are kind of their, their perceptions or attitudes and opinions towards various types of broader issues. What what leaped out at you from the data you got? Was there anything that that shocked you? As an economist who specializes in uh, economically vulnerable populations that have experienced often a labor market shock, I was surprised by the extent of economic insecurity uh, throughout the income distribution. So people who were College educated, making three times median income in the United States, 
put on the survey that they were very worried about making ends meet. There's reason. I mean, there are other surveys that have found that financial fragility has creeped up the income distribution. And there are other these are sponsored by the Federal Reserve Board, by the U.S. Census Bureau. You know, we have multiple outside support that what we found was not unique. But it's still that's still a fact that's surprising that 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 kind of fragility would 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 manifest as a worry to say that they're very worried about paying down debt, Uh, even and and this was something we you know we haven't talked a lot about generation xers and throughout the study you know it was really one of three they either looked like boomers they looked like millennials or they were halfway between them this is an area where generation xers looked a lot like millennials they were very concerned about their economic security uh, i think that was that was one thing that was really surprising to me is the extent to which that occurred i think what was surprising to me was when we looked at the data I was confident that once we got some kind of measure for political affiliation, that a lot of the variance in our dependent variables, the thing we're explaining would go would, would be explained by political affiliation. And when we don't have perfect data on a political affiliation for people in our sample, but for those we did get, a millennials were were much more likely to claim, or they the large chunk of millennials said they were independent, or they there was an other party or they weren't sure. And secondly, political Political affiliation didn't have an effect in our models. Now, I don't want to make it sound like politics doesn't matter, but I'm wondering on some of these, particularly these kitchen table issues, that there's something that there's the political discourse and then there's the real lived experiences and perceptions of people in our sample. And I, I wonder what surprised me was if the, if political affiliation isn't driving this, there's something else that's driving it. And perhaps there's a disconnect between what we're talking in politics, particularly in the, in the bubble that is potentially D.C., and what people across the country are experiencing and how they're kind of viewing the way that, you know, the world world is to them today. Great. Uh, Selena, do we have a, a caller? Yes. Nancy, please go ahead. Your line is now open for your question. I'm so sorry. I am a millennial or a boomer and I don't know how to manage my cell phone. <laughs> uh, my question had been about um, the follow-up part was I was trying to figure out if those who voted tracked in a particular way, not whether millennials had not voted, but if those who voted were more in favor of democracy or if that wasn't associated. Oh, are great. Were I'm, you so, able I'm to glad. Look at that? Yeah, we did. And I'm glad you're able to get back on the call because I, th- I thought you had a follow up question. Um, interestingly enough, it was not a predictor of your enthusiasm for democracy. Now, granted, it's it's highly correlated because older people are more likely to vote. But even when controlling for age, we didn't find that people who are most enthusiastic for democracy were the that it could be explained by um, the most democratic behavior, which is voting. So I, we we looked for that, and we were we were hoping to find maybe there was some broader disconnect. And that you have a maybe that there's a set of people who don't vote, don't participate, you know, don't care, and democracy is not important to them. And we didn't really find a lot of a lot of evidence for that. You know, people who said democracy was only somewhat important were still likely to say that protecting the civil rights of minorities was very important. Or people who didn't vote still said that democracy was very important to them. So it was a it's again the question is very vague and the interpretation by default will be also but that was a it's a great question to ask and unfortunately or fortunately we couldn't explain it away in our data thank you 
All right. Thanks, Nancy. We are getting near the end of our time, but I would like to ask one other question, which is what what are you working on now or what would you like to be working on in this sphere? So the work that some of the work that I'm doing right now is actually looking at Russian disinformation operations. And I think that for me, what I think is interesting right now is, is, is given the current discourse in our, in our country, is, is there differences between young and old and how they are consuming information? And in particular, are there vulnerabilities that we can potentially protect our country from? I think the other area that I think is interesting is, for me as a military sociologist, is looking at recruitment and retention of service members. Uh, the military is a large job training program for young adults. It houses large swaths of young folk, and it does a great job of turning them into leaders. And I th- and I know we've had some interest from our military sponsors of using this kind of report to, and, and in particular, inform their manpower and personnel policies so we can move beyond just kind of the generational labels and try to figure out ways that we can best support our service members um, and make sure we have a, uh, a, a ready force structure. Interesting. I think the follow-up to this report that I'm putting together is to examine the uh, professional pipeline of people getting into these historically kind of white male-dominated occupations from both the intelligence community, national security, as well as the STEM uh, science and technology. This, which can, which of course, especially when you consider nuclear security or energy policy, that can bleed over into national security. And I would like to examine those pipelines. Uh, in more detail, things that have been successful at bringing in racial and ethnic minorities. Because what we found was that, you know, there's this group that is going to be in a leadership position that has a relatively diverse set of experiences and a diverse composition. I feel like the risk to policymaking in the future is if we don't incorporate those experiences into policymaking. That's where a disconnect comes from. When the people making policy and leading policy don't reflect the views and experiences of people affected by that policy. And so making sure that people, uh, that these pipelines open up uh, for broad experiences and broad populations is is important. It's a challenge in numerous industries, many aspects of uh, American life, and one that will only become more prescient uh, in the future. So I'm hoping to work on, on those issues. Sounds like fascinating work, both of you. Uh, it's now 12.13 in Washington, D.C., and we are at the end of our time. Thank you, Andrew, Marek, and Catherine for your time and insights. Thank you to our Policy Circle and Rand Next members and friends for joining us on this call. If you would like more information on the Millennials Report or to listen to a podcast of this call, I would encourage you to visit our website, rand.org, or you could contact us directly at policy underscore circle at rand.org. And mark your calendars for the next calls in this series. On July 12th, we'll be discussing what's next for Korea, and on July 25th, suicide prevention. This concludes our call. Thank you for participating. Have a great day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.